gather together and learn more about your word. I do pray as we finish these last verses of the book of Joel, Lord, that you give us clarity, that you would help us to understand the scriptures, that you'd give us clarity as to how they speak with one voice regarding your future kingdom. And we pray that you would keep these promises in our hearts so that we'd persevere until the day you come for us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's good to see everybody here. I'm glad that you all came that came. And there's some more that are still coming. I know it was a snowy one. Now, uh, we're going to begin by just talking about what is the point here at the end of Joel, Joel chapter 3. And one of the big points that I want you to see is the connection between the last verses of the book of Joel and the connection of Matthew 24, the Olivet Discourse. And one of the reasons I want you to make the connections is to see that the Bible really does speak with one voice. It really does fit nicely like a glove. And so we don't have to fall into this postmodern trap that says, well, who can understand eschatology? Who can understand the prophets? Who can understand the Olivet Discourse? No, I think we can know these things. And so I wanted to begin by just reminding you what... Joel 3.15 was all about. It was about the sun, moon, and stars being darkened. That's where we had left off last time. And I mentioned that that was exactly what Jesus had referred to in his Olivet Discourse. The Olivet Discourse, I'm claiming, I got my pointer here. Now, does everyone remember what this diagram means? It's the last seven years, Daniel's 70th week. So if you go from this point on the screen to this point, you've gone seven years. If you go from this point to this point, you've gone three and a half years. Does that make sense? That's the abomination that causes desolation. What I'm claiming is the events of Joel chapter 3 are occurring here at the end of the 70th week. And Jesus seems to make this very clear. That's what I want to get in our minds because it will keep us from making some errors. So let's remind ourselves of how Jesus applied Joel 3.15. Remember he said, but immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Now, does everyone see this phrase immediately after the tribulation of those days? Notice I have that in bold. The big question we have to wrestle with are when are those days? And so I'm just giving you a little, little review. Did we determine that those days were prior to the 70th week in the church age? Or did we conclude that those days were the 70th week itself? Well, we concluded the latter. That those days are actually the signs that occur within the 70th week of Daniel. Remember, all the way through Matthew 24, Jesus gives you signs of the 70th week of Daniel. When he comes now to Matthew 24, 29, what is he talking about? He's talking about the end. So when he says immediately after the tribulation of those days, he's not talking about the tribulation of the church age. He's talking about those days, namely the 70th week of Daniel. That's absolutely critical. If we don't get that, we'll be wrong on the Olivet Discourse. Okay, now, one verse you can write down, just so you, you want one verse to prove it to yourself, Matthew 24, 15. Jesus says, so when you see the abomination that causes desolation, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, and then in parentheses it even says, let the reader understand. It couldn't be any clearer that you were to understand what Jesus is referring to. That was the midpoint, the abomination of desolation in Daniel 9.27. 
So that's why we know all that Jesus has been speaking about in Matthew 24 was about this 70th week. Yes, Brian. Oh, we got a microphone coming. All right. Okay, I just want to clarify something with your diagram. Yeah. So when you put uh, Matthew twenty four twenty nine and the Joel reference to just to the right of that line, and after the tribulation, which is seven years, and then we got the three and a half year period. I would always think that to the right of that line would be this, the millennial. This line here would be. Pardon. This line here. This line here. Yep. Would be the millennial kingdom. Exactly. Okay. Yep. So if that to the right of that line is the millennial kingdom. Yep. If that is the end of the millennial kingdom, and then no, that the line right. is the end of the tribulation. Yep. Is that verse that we just referenced when Jesus appears, is that part of, it can't be part of the tribulation because it says after the tribulation. It's so the is end. it actually part of, so it's the end. It's the termination it's, of it. It's the termination yeah. of it. Yep. Okay. And that's why, um, in fact, it's, I'm glad you asked that. Notice that term uthos immediately. There's no intervening time period. So it's, it literally would be saying um, right after the game, the team, uh, the NFL team got together and they prayed. Yeah. Um, there was no intervening time. They did it right at the end of the game. Okay. Or um, you might say in the ninth inning, at the end of the game, he struck the last batter out. So it's, it's... <laughs> exactly. But the, the critical point here is that this shows us this is all occurring at the end. And that's what I want people to see is this isn't that difficult. Now, why is that important? Because what I'm going to show you in the next couple of verses in Matthew, I just want to delve into that a little bit, is this is not a rapture passage. So the rapture, therefore, can't happen here. So we know this is talking about that same time period that Joel is. And we also know that it has to be the end of the 70th week because it's after the tribulation of those days. It's at the end of it. But I'm going to show you that it can't be the rapture. And so what is it? Well, it's the second advent where Christ comes to bring his kingdom. Um, how many in here have ever heard of the pre-wrath movement? Um, in some weeks, I don't know if I might do Proverbs uh, first before I get into this, but there's actually a good movie that was put out by some pre-wrath scholars, and I disagree with some of their theological conclusions, obviously, otherwise I would have the same position, but it's a great movie, and it actually gets into the issues. I might have you, because I know some of you said, I really enjoyed getting the homework. What I thought is have you watch part of the movie, but then I would delve into that part, and deal with the theological issues. So I might do that for a few weeks. But I'd like to teach you Proverbs in the book of James. I'd like to do some wisdom literature. I don't know about you, but I need wisdom in the, this age that I, I'm living in now. So I'd like to do that. But here's what I want you to see. is I want you to see that the pre-wrath movement, they claim that the first half of the tribulation, they call it the beginning of sorrows or the beginning of birth pangs, and I wouldn't take issue with that. But then what they do is they believe that the first part of the last three and a half years is called the Great Tribulation. So kind of put that in your mind. They have the Great Tribulation, but they don't believe that that's God's wrath. So none of that's God's wrath. It's only the wrath of man. Well, then they believe that that will be cut short. It won't last a full three and a half years. And what cuts it short is the day of the Lord. And the sign of that happening is what Jesus talks about here. The sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall. 
Now, where do they connect that to? Well, I want you to turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 6, verses 12 through 13. Please turn your Bibles to Revelation 6, verses 12 through 13. Now, I'm going to show you this is the passage they believe Jesus is referring to when he says the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall. And so what do they assume then is this is happening in Revelation 6, Therefore, the day of the Lord begins after this. That's what they believe. Okay, and again, they place this sometime in the last three and a half years. Does everyone have Revelation 6.12? This is the sixth seal. Notice John sees this. He says, I look when he broke the sixth seal and there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair and the whole moon became like blood. Verse 13, it says, And the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree casts its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. So notice, it's very synonymous, very much alike. However, there is a difference. I believe here in Matthew 24, 29, Jesus is alluding to Joel chapter 3, verse 15. And one of the reasons is Joel three fifteen. Notice here, it says, The moon will not give its light. That's exactly what Joel 3.15 says. But Revelation 6.12-13 that you just read, there's a slight nuance. It's not that the moon doesn't give its light. It's that the moon is red. And that's a reference back to Joel 2.30. So here's what I want you to have in your mind. Revelation 6.12-13 is alluding to Joel 2.30. That's not what Jesus is directly alluding to here. He's alluding to Joel 3.15 in Matthew 24.29. Why is that important? Because in Joel 3.15, it's depicting this final battle. Now, what's the other problem with believing that the Great Tribulation is terminated with the sixth seal in Revelation chapter 6? Well, the problem with that is, remember we said last time, there are many more cosmic disturbances. That's just the first one. So we, had four, we have four other ones, the one that Jesus is mentioning as well. So this is only the first one. How can that be after the tribulation of those days? In fact, it's really at the beginning. So do you see how the pre-wrath time frame doesn't make sense? Jesus is describing something that happens after the 70th week. The sixth seal is something that's at the beginning of the 70th week. Does that make sense? So they don't jive. That's my point, all right? Now, I want you to see also that when Matthew 24, 29 is talking about these events, it's talking about the same events that we see in Joel 3, 15 and Isaiah 13, 10. This is the final battle that occurs prior to the kingdom. This is going to be the kingdom comes in. Yeah, Paul. Yeah, I'm sorry, Carly's coming. Oh, behind <laughs> I I just have a quick I just have a quick question, and that is is all this of salvific significance? No, it's not. But it, it is of importance, I think, in understanding our eschatology. Let me explain why. For many years, I read a book, and I was completely buffaloed by it. It was written by R.C. Sproul called "The Last Days According to Jesus," and he said all these events happened in the year seventy A.D. Yeah. Okay, well, to me, that was very depressing. 
to think about, I don't have the future. These aren't the fulfillment of Daniel. Um, I was really down about it. it. It really depressed me as a Christian for many years. I started to despair whether anyone could ever know any of these things. Well, when I started to study them in earnest back in 2007, I learned that, you know what, the Bible is actually very clear. We just have to stop muddying it and just see what it says. So that's my goal is to simply say, hey, when we get to Joel 3, I don't think most people have seen the significance of how that connects to Matthew 24. So that's what I want to do is I want to get rid of the postmodern blinders, people who say, well, I'm pan-millennial. It'll all just pan out at the end. No, I think we can know, and I think it's very clear. So that's what I want you to see is the clarity of Scripture so that you can say, hey, you know what? I think this is what the end is all about. John MacArthur asked the question, we all believe as evangelicals in what's called the perspicuity of Scripture. That means the clarity of it. But all of a sudden when it comes to the end, we say, well, you know, no one can really know. Well, really, um, John MacArthur asked the question, did God muddle the ending? He's clear on everything else, but when we come to the end, let's just, well, nobody can know. Nobody knows. Well, then let's start applying that to the atonement. You know, the left does that with the blood atonement. They say, you know, you guys who believe in the substitutionary atonement, that's just one theory among many. Well, actually, it's what the Bible teaches. Uh, Jesus says that he did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for the many, literally on behalf of. Mm -hmm. 2 Corinthians 5.21, the Father sent Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin on our behalf, that substitution, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. When you unpack the data, it's what the Bible teaches is the substitutionary atonement. It's not just one theory among many. So what I'm trying to show is that when you actually unpack the data, it's very clear. That's the whole point. Okay, so with that, now let me turn. In fact, that's a great segue, Paul. Oh, I'm sorry, Brian. Uh, real quick, uh, one more thing about the uh, uh, pre-wrath movement. Yeah. Uh, to believe that the sixth seal uh, could be the wrath of man, uh, that's just absurd that man could cause those things to happen. Uh, just, just... Great point. Very good point. And further proof that you're right is... What's interesting is, remember at the fourth seal, you have the sword, famine, pestilence, wild beast, those four things that kill a quarter of the earth's population. That's declared the wrath of God in Ezekiel 14, verse 19, when God used those same things upon the land of Israel to judge them for their idolatry. All of a sudden, we're led to believe that that's not the wrath of God when it's poured out on the nations. I think it's absurd. The other thing I mentioned in our studies in Revelation is, do you recall that every time you get to the seventh, remember there's the seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bold judgments. They're all consecutive. It gets worse and worse as you go. The seventh seal opens up to the seventh trumpet judgments. The seventh trumpet opens up to the seven bowls. The seventh bowl opens up to eternity because the wrath of God is forevermore in the lake of fire. That's how it's structured. John wants you to see it that way. Now, why am I mentioning this? Very important. Every time you get to the seventh, you have something called storm theophany. That is, you see the lightning, you see thunder, you see hail. That's getting you back to the throne room of Revelation chapter 5. In Revelation 5, you had the storm theophany that came from what? The throne, just as it came at Mount Sinai. When God came, the storm came. It was a loud event. He didn't come silently. He came loudly. 
with a storm theophany. So what's the point? At the seventh, seventh seal, seventh trumpet, seventh bowl, it all connects you back to the throne room to say, this all comes from the throne. It all comes from the Lamb. Who was the one who was worthy of opening the seals? The Lamb. So he begins all of the judgments. So why are we saying and going out of our way to say that's not the wrath of the Lamb? It's not the wrath of God. It's the wrath of man. You see, it doesn't make sense. All right, that's what I'm trying to show you is none of it makes sense. Let me show you one other thing. If the pre-wrath movement is correct, remember Jesus says this is happening after the tribulation of those days. They believe the great tribulation is cut short to be less than three and a half years. Well, that's a presupposition that doesn't line up with the scriptures. Can someone look up Revelation 13.5? Please look up Revelation 13.5. In fact, Rich, do you have a Bible with you? Because I, oh, no, no, don't worry. I, you know what? I'm getting there too, and I forgot mine. So that's why I was hoping someone... Oh, Nancy, thank you. You've got your glasses. Revelation 13.5. There was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant... I'm sorry, Nancy, stop right there. Um, just given to him, that's the Antichrist. So here's what I want you to hear as she reads this. How long does the Antichrist reign for? It's talking about the Great Tribulation. Guess how long? Three and a half years. <laughs> yeah, but we've got to hear it from Revelation 13.5. As authoritative as you are, Rich. There was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies, and authority to act for 42 months was given to him. So for 42 months, that's the last three and a half years. Remember, he sets himself up in the temple to be God, and he reigns for 42 months. That's the last three and a half years. But pre-wrath says that that has to be wrong for their whole view to fit. So that's what I'm trying to show you is this doesn't jive some of these other views. It's not as compelling. So when you see these movies, it sounds really good, but you'd have to say to yourself, when Jesus says that time would be cut short, why are we assuming it would be cut short to less than three and a half years? I'm assuming it was cut to three and a half years the Great Tribulation. Why? Because 30 years after Jesus was recorded in Matthew of saying those days would be cut short, John the Apostle said that the Antichrist would reign for 42 months, three and a half years. Okay, either John is right or pre-wrath is right. I'm going with the Apostle. Okay, so that's why immediately after the Tribulation of those days has to be at the end of the 70th week. Now, let's look at Matthew 24, 30 through 31. And I'll get off of this. I'm going to get back to Joel. But I want to give you four important points to show you this is about Christ coming to give his kingdom, not to rapture the church. And I'm going to give you four points that really prove that. Matthew 24, 30. Again, we're connecting this to Joel 3, 15. This is the same event that Joel was talking about. Matthew 24, 30 through 31. It says, And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky... And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. Now, the first thing I want you to see here is notice that phrase in red, the sign of the Son of Man. That's the final sign that people will see within the 70th week of Daniel. Now, remember, what was the question the disciples asked in Matthew 24, 3? What are the signs of your coming? First of all, they asked, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? So the final sign, remember, he gives, Jesus gives all these signs within the seven years. The final sign is what? It's Jesus himself. He is, he's returning. 
That's the final sign. The final sign of the 70th week. Now, why is that important? Because it explains why it would be at the end. There aren't any more signs after that in the 70th week of Daniel. Why? Because after that's the kingdom. And so that shows us, that's why he says immediately after the tribulation of those days, and he talks about this battle that Joel is talking about, the final battle on the planet. So the final sign is Jesus coming to wipe out his enemies surrounding Jerusalem. That's the final sign in the 70th week of Daniel. Wouldn't that show, though, that wouldn't that be the rapture right there then? I mean, doesn't that kind of show when the rapture happens at the last trumpet? No, in fact, I'm glad you asked that because I'll, I'll deal with that very term, the great trumpet. What you're going to see, Rich, is that has to do with the ingathering of Israel to their kingdom. And it's a great promise that we see in Isaiah 27, and so we'll come to that. So I'm glad you asked that. So this is different than the rapture. This isn't Christ coming for the church to rapture us, to bring us to heaven. Instead, this is his ingathering of Jews into the kingdom of Israel. And I'll show you evidence of Just that. Just real briefly, yeah. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I think 30, no, 52, I think yeah, that's right where it is. Yeah, the great trumpet. Yeah, yeah the great. That kind of really reminds me of this passage right here. Absolutely. The one thing I'll show you is here is the only time ever in the Bible that you have the term great trumpet. The only time that you have that in the Old Testament is Isaiah 27, uh, I think it's verse 12 or 13, right in there. Okay, now why is that important? Because certainly Jesus is alluding to that. And I'll have, we'll read that here in just a moment. But what you'll see is that's not a rapture of the church. It's an ingathering of Israel into the kingdom who have been dispersed. And you'll, you'll see good evidence of that. Does that make sense? Well, maybe I, you know what? Sure, well, we'll look at it. Yeah. We'll see what you think. Briefly, you and I had a conversation, and I'm not necessarily pre-trib. Yeah. And you said, Rich, do you believe in the rapture before the millennium? I said, absolutely. He said, we're sure. brothers. We're brothers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, well, we'd be even brothers if we didn't have that. But yeah, yep, absolutely. Well, let's, let's keep going, and you'll see the evidence, I think, for yourself. Now, oh, Beth, we, gotta, we need a microphone over there. It takes me a while to catch up with you. Yeah. So I want to go back to uh, the previous, uh, where you were saying that this, uh, the sun and the, the sun darkened, the moon, etc., is at the end, very end of the tribulation. Yeah. And then you took us to Revelation 6, 12, yep. and it says, when he opened the sixth seal. Now, the sixth seal is not the same as the end of Absolutely. the tribulation. Yep. So I'm confused. Did this happen twice then? In fact, at the not end only is, of yeah. the sixth seal and then yep. at the end, at the final end. Exactly. In fact, what okay. I'm saying is you have cosmic disturbances that happen five times. So what happens when you read a pre-wrath, like Van Campen, when he came out with this pre-wrath view, they focus only on the cosmic disturbance here. But what about the one that happens at the fourth trumpet, the fifth trumpet, the fourth bull, and then the one that happens at the end of the 70th week? There's more than just the sixth seal. Exactly. So the other thing is at the sixth seal, remember it talks about, in fact, I read this, that the moon will become like, become like blood. Now, that doesn't mean it's failing to have light. There is still some light coming from it. I don't mean to be persnickety, but here, notice it is a little different. The moon will not give its light. Now, the reason I, 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 again, they could be synonymous, but if you look at Joel 2.30, 
Joel 2.30 mentions the moon becoming red. Joel 3.15 says the moon will not give its light. Jesus is alluding to Joel 3.15, not Joel 2.30. Revelation 6.12-13 is a direct allusion to Joel 2.30, but Matthew 24.29 is a direct allusion to Joel 3.15. Yeah, and so what I'm saying is if Joel 3.15, that's my whole point, is putting this together, Joel is about that final battle. Well, when does the final battle happen? At the sixth seal? No, it happens at the end of the 70th week. That's why there's seven years. That's why the, the prophets keep speaking of seven years, seven years. There's going to be seven years. Remember Daniel 9, 24 through 27? Well, at the end of the 70th week, we think that that final battle is going to occur. And lo and behold, Jesus talks about the same thing Joel was talking about. Those are the connections I want us to see. Does that make sense? Very good. I hope maybe there was some clarity for some others. Okay, so let's get back to this second point. Notice the reference here to the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky. What is that a reference to? That phrase, the Son of Man, is Jesus' favorite self-designation. He refers to himself as the Son of Man more than any other title, which is shocking. When I was a new Christian, I always would think if I was the Messiah, I'd just call myself God, and that would kind of really show him, right? I'm God and I'm, I'm boss. But he refers to himself as the Son of Man. Now, does that mean he's something less than God? No. It's actually a direct allusion to Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 through 14. Why does Jesus constantly link himself to the Son of Man over and over in the Gospels? To show that he's the Messiah who has the right to rule over the world. Now, I want you to turn your Bibles, if you will, to Daniel 9. Let's start in verse 12. Excuse me, Daniel 7, verse 12. Daniel 7, verse 12. I just want you to see what the issue is. It's about the kingdoms coming to an end and Christ's kingdom reigning forever. So notice in Daniel 7, 12. By the way, these uh, beasts that you're looking at in Daniel 7, they represent kingdoms. The same beasts were alluded to in Daniel 2. So this is a repeat in Daniel Daniel 7:12 it says as the rest of the beasts excuse me as for the rest of the beasts it says their dominion was taken away but an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time now what's interesting in the book of revelation these beasts are the old uh, the babylonian kingdom you have the assyrian kingdom the medo-persian kingdom the the kingdom of greece you have a roman kingdom that'll be revived All of these are built on in the book of Revelation. But notice what happens after this, this great kingdom that will end up being the Antichrist. In verse 13 of Daniel 7, it says, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like the Son of Man was coming. Okay, now stop there. That's a direct allusion that Jesus is making here in Matthew 24, 30. Does everyone see that? So he wants you to see that this is a fulfillment of Daniel 7.13. Now, what's Daniel 7.13 about? Well, notice it goes on to say, it says, And he, this is the Messiah, came up to the Ancient of Days, that's the Father, and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one 
which will not be destroyed. Dear ones, what's being described there is Christ establishes the millennial kingdom. Now, if we go back to our timeline, when would that most likely occur? Somewhere during the 70th week or at the end? Well, at the end, that's right. So this is not about the rapture of the church, but it's about him establishing the kingdom. We're seeing evidence of that from Daniel 7. Does everyone see that? Okay. Now, a third point that I want everyone to see is I want you to notice in verse 31, it talks about the great trumpet. The only time again in the entire Bible you see that term great and trumpet is Isaiah 7.13. Shofar is the term for trumpet. You've all heard of the shofar being blown. The term for great is gadol. So in Hebrew, it's a gadol shofar. It's a great trumpet. The only passage in the entire Old Testament that you have that phrase is Isaiah 27.13. Turn your Bibles again to Isaiah 27, verses 12 through 13. Isaiah 27, 12 through 13. Now, when you turn to Isaiah 27, that passage is all about Israel and God at the end of time reestablishing that kingdom. Now, remember, one of the promises that we have even in the New Testament is one day all Israel will be saved. Paul makes that promise in Romans eleven twenty six that en masse they are going to come to faith. Well, here you see the promise that they're going to be brought into their kingdom no matter where they've been dispersed they'll be brought back. Isaiah 27, 12 through 13, it says, In that day, the Lord will start his threshing from the flowing stream of the Euphrates to the brook of Egypt. So stop there. He's going to have a harvest. And this isn't the harvest on his enemies. That's earlier in Isaiah. This is the harvest of his people, Israel, bringing them into their kingdom. And notice, where is it going to come from? It's going to come from the stream of the Euphrates to the brook of Egypt. That's probably the Nile. It's probably a little bit of a derogatory term on their Nile. Now, why does he mention from the Euphrates to the brook of Egypt? Because those were the dimensions of Israel given to Abraham in Genesis 15, 18. So they're going to be brought back. They're going to have that kingdom. And he says, And you will be gathered up one by one, O sons of Israel. Notice verse 13. It says, It will come about also in that day that a great trumpet will be blown. And those who are perishing in the land of Assyria and who were scattered in the land of Egypt will come and worship the Lord in the holy mountain at Israel. Or excuse me, at Jerusalem. Notice here this idea that they were scattered. Who was scattered when Isaiah was writing Isaiah 27? What was he writing about? Was he writing about the church being scattered? Israel. He was writing about Israel, wasn't he? Israel was going to be scattered under the Babylonian diaspora. That's what he was prophesying, and yet they would be brought back one day, one by one. So what's this about, this great trumpet? It's about the regathering of Israel. In fact, notice the fourth point. They will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. That term gather is used in Isaiah 27, 12. Does everyone see that at the very end? He says, and you will be gathered up one by one. Does everyone see that in Isaiah 27, 12? The term sunago is used in the Septuagint of Isaiah 27, 12. What's used here? Episunago. It's a derivative, just has a prefix on it, the same term. Okay, so what are, what's being alluded to here isn't the rapture of the church, but it's the ingathering of Israel at the end of the 70th week into the kingdom. 
Okay, I don't think Jesus could be any clearer as to what's going on. So, anybody have any comments, questions? I'll move off of this, but I want you to see, I'll just back up one more time, that clearly this is at the end of the 70th week where the kingdom is coming. Israel's regathered, and the Messiah brings about his kingdom. Yes, Marilyn. Maybe the... Maybe this isn't the right time, but I, the, we believe in the preeminency of Jesus Christ. He can come at any time, right? Yep, that would be the imminent the return of Christ. Yep. That, that's the rapture. Well, yep. the pre-wrath position wouldn't accept that, right? That's right. They believe that there are signs that occur prior. Okay. Yep, you got it. So. And so on that timeline, what they would say, they have a, what they would call a form of imminency. They would say that you will know the general time but you won't know specifically in this last three and a half years when he comes. I don't believe that that's an accurate rendering of when Jesus says no one knows the day or the hour. I think we're being too persnickety to see day and hour merely as a 24-hour period of time and a 60-minute period of time. Let me give you an example. Do you remember in Revelation 3.10, Jesus gives the promise to the church at Philadelphia, because you've been faithful to keep my word, I will keep you from the hour of trial that comes upon the whole world. We know that to be the seven-year tribulation period. Would anyone suggest anywhere in scholarship that that's only a 60-minute window of tribulation that will come upon the world? Because after all, he says the hour of trial. Well, no, we know that the day of the Lord, the hour of trial, these are synonymous for larger periods of time. So in the same way, when Jesus says no one knows the day or the hour, we have to realize he's talking about the day of the Lord in the hour of trial. It's more than just a 24-hour period. So in other words, we have no earthly idea when he's coming. That's the idea. And that's the whole point that he's making. That, that's what really drives imminency. Uh, Eric? Yeah? you got a mic. Quickly. No, I just... You oh, okay. Tell them quickly about the chaotic structure. Yeah. 24. And then the other questions answered suddenly and unexpectedly. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so what Bob is bringing up is one thing that really helped us, and this gets back to Paul's question as well, why is this so important? Bob and I had a breakthrough back in 2007 in the grammar of Matthew 24, which was very exciting to us because this whole thing had been an enigma to me for so long. Matthew is known for using chiastic structures. What a chiasm is, it's just a uh, way that they would organize their thoughts. It's a literary device. So let me illustrate it. Matthew 24, 3, don't glaze over. Listen to the question. The disciples asked two questions. When will these things be? These things is the 70th week of Daniel, all of the events within it, because it's filled in by Christ as such. Matthew 24, 15, he's talking about the abomination of desolation, not the church age. So when will these things be? When will the 70th week come? And what will be the signs of your coming in the end of the age? Two questions. When will these things be? And what will be the sign? Jesus begins in Matthew 24, 4 by answering the second question first, which is what are the signs? So from Matthew 24, 4 all the way to Matthew 24, verse 35, Matthew 24, 4 all the way to verse 35, he's answering the signs. He's giving you all the signs. These are the signs, and they're all within the 70th week. They're all in here. All in the la- they're not here prior to the 70th week in the church age, the age you and I are living in, they're all in the 70th week. And all of a sudden now in Matthew 24, 36, he uses peri day. 
Perry Day says, now concerning. It's like a paragraph break. Now I'm going to address a different issue. Now he's going to come to, when will these things be? And he says, regarding the t- he says, now concerning the day or the hour, no one knows. Now he's answering the question, when will the 70th week come? And you have no idea. It's like a thief. It's like in Noah's day where they had no idea what was coming and the sudden destruction came upon them. It's like the master who's gone and the owners or the, excuse me, the servants of the house have no idea when the owner's returning. He says it how many different ways that you have no idea when he's returning. That's Matthew 24, 36 onward through the rest of the discourse. So that's how it's structured. That completely eluded me until the year 2007. And once I saw that, it just, it came alive. And so that's what I was excited to share, to say, hey, you know what, this isn't an enigma. So I hope that helps maybe answer your question too, Marilyn. That's a, that's a chiasm. And we'll, we'll talk more about those when we do some uh, Proverbs, because you'll see those in Proverbs as well. Um, now your question again, uh, read it or rephrase it again to me one more time. Make sure I hit it. I guess I was talking more about the rapture. Christ will come at any time. Yep. Yep. So, yeah, I'm sorry. That's, that's what I wanted to mention. So that's what ties into the imminence. The imminence in that structure, that chiastic structure. Remember, you, the parousia isn't a one-day event. The parousia is the technical term for the coming of Christ. We always think, well, it's a one-day event. It's not. It should be conceived of as that entire seven years. So in Matthew 24, 36, when does that parousia come, that 70th week? No one knows. And that's what gives us the imminency. There's two things required for imminency. One is the event is certain. The second is you have no idea when it's coming. Those two things are required. If you lose one of them, it ceases to be imminent. Something could be certain and you have a, your birthday is on a certain date. It's certain you're going to have a birth date, birthday, but what's, the reason it's not imminent is because you know the date. Okay, so what makes this an imminent event is it's certain to happen, but you have no idea when it's going to happen. So that's what creates the imminence. And by the way, that's what the biblical authors understood, the apostles. They understood it that way. Paul believed this could happen in his day. Now, that doesn't mean things won't happen prior to this event. An imminent event doesn't require no precursors. There, I mean, in other words, there can be certain things that happen before, but they're not absolutely essential to happen. They're not required. Does that make sense? Um, think of the thief analogy. What would you think of a thief who tipped you off as to when he's coming? He says, you know what? Look for my, my Buick. It's going to be blue. And I will not, you, you won't have to worry until you see my Buick parked in your driveway. Well, you'd, have no, you'd, you'd be ready for the thief every time. But the point of the thief imagery is they don't tell you when they're coming. That's the whole point of the thief. You have no idea. He's coming like a thief. And so again, the thief imagery isn't to show that Jesus does something malicious or steals. The whole point of it is to show you that it's an imminent attack, this 70th week of Daniel on the unsuspecting world. So I hope that helps. Okay, now, the last thing I wanted to talk about, again, was this gathering together. The very same term that's used for gather is the term that's used in Isaiah 27. Whatever Isaiah 27 is speaking of, it's not the same as the rapture. What Isaiah 27, I think, is speaking of is the ingathering of Israel. Okay, so why is that important to our Joel study? Because Joel 3 seems to be describing a final battle in which all the nations are going to surround Jerusalem 
and then God is going to intervene. Well, you know what? That seems to be what Jesus is saying. So if we put the two together, I think we're seeing with one voice, the Bible teaches us that at the end of the 70th week of Daniel, there's going to be a great battle. You'll have cosmic upheavals, and the Messiah returns to judge his enemies to but bring about his kingdom. That's what we're seeing. Is that Gog and Magog? The battle of Gog and Magog actually happens after the millennial kingdom, according to John in Revelation 20. Yep. So remember, after the millennial kingdom, there's going to be a final revolt where all the nations come against Jerusalem one final time. And then how does that battle end? Jesus calls down fire and wipes them out. It's a very lopsided battle. <laughs> yep. And then from there, you go to the, the white throne judgment where there are, all the unbelievers are thrown into the lake of fire. Yep, so that's the battle of Gog and Magog. It, it does, and one of the reasons I think, um, remember the book of Ezekiel? The book of Ezekiel talks about those, like in Ezekiel 38 and 39, yeah. One of the reasons I think the battle of Gog and Magog in Ezekiel is the same as what John is describing, is in Ezekiel he describes Israel living in peace. Okay, so these enemies, they come af- after Israel, but Israel's living at peace. And he says that four times in the text of Ezekiel. Well, is Israel right now living in peace? No. They have rockets. Could that be the Antichrist peace treaty? And then they're living in peace, and then Gog and Magog. Yeah, you know, it's funny, though. The problem with that is there's not a lot of peace even then. Because if you look at it, the Jews right away are persecuted. They end up fleeing from the wrath. According to Revelation chapter 12, he hides them in the wilderness. Why are they being hid in the wilderness if they had such peace in the 70th week of Daniel? In fact, so bad is the 70th week of Daniel, especially the last three and a half years, it's regarded as Jacob's great distress, according to Jeremiah 30, verse 7. So the whole point is when they're living in peace is when the Messiah is with them. And if you read the book of Ezekiel, it's a very lopsided battle the enemies of God will complete, be completely devoured by fire. What are they devoured by in Revelation chapter 20? By, by fire. Right, yep. but the second seal is peace will be taken from the earth. So I'm wondering yep. if there's a first seal, which is peace. That's right, right at the beginning. Magog, yep, so, yep. And then the second seal is peace is taken from the earth. Exactly, so that's right at the beginning of the 70th week. Right, that's what I'm saying. Right, so... Yeah, so, but the point is, if that's at the beginning and there's peace taken from the earth, there's no peace. And there's no peace during the earth. So prior to the 70th week, you're in the church age. Israel doesn't have peace now. The 70th week is really characterized by warfare, and it gets worse and worse. Yeah, again, um, you, you could, there's some people who believe that there's a double fulfillment. I don't. I just think that John mentions Gog and Magog for a reason. And I think the reason he's mentioning it is he's linking it back to the Ezekiel battle. And I think the best indication or the best time period for Israel living in peace will be during the millennial kingdom. It's not during the church age. It's not in the 70th week. It's in the millennial kingdom that they're living in. It says in Ezekiel that they're living in uh, villages that have no walls. The people who live securely, why do you look for them, O Gog and Magog? Um, they're not living in security in the 70th week of Daniel, I would say, and during the church age, but they are in the millennial kingdom. And it says in the millennial kingdom, after that happens, that all the nations will come against them again. And that's where Christ calls down fire. So I think that that's the best referent for that. Especially since John, who's inspired by the Holy Spirit, links us to Gog and Magog. In fact, does anybody have that passage? 
Could somebody read Revelation 20? I think we're around verse... I'll turn to it here if my eyes will allow me. Revelation 20, right around verse 11, I think. You might have to go... You wanted verse 8? Yeah, there you go, verse 8. And this is... um, Well, let me start at verse 7. Sure. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they will, and they came upon him, and they came up on the broad plain of the earth, and surrounded the camp of the saints, and the beloved city, and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. There you go. So when does this happen? This Gog and Magog, according to John, under the inspiration of the Spirit, it happens when, after when the, the thousand, thousand years, years are completed. That's yeah. right. That's right. So that to me um, would be the best reference. Then would be after the thousand years because of that. Now, could there be a preliminary event? Um, there may be. It's just that that's where John places it. So that's where I'm going with uh, that, I think, is the best data. So thanks for the good question there, Rich. Um, all right. Now, with that, I think we've exhausted this. Uh, anybody else have any comments or questions? I'll move on here to the Lord roaring from Zion. We only have a few verses left here of Joel. This final battle, notice it says, The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth tremble. But the Lord is a refuge for his people and a stronghold to the sons of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God, dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. So Jerusalem will be holy, and strangers will pass through it no more. I want you to notice in blue, it says, Now the Lord is roaring from Zion. This is very beautiful because here, for the first time, we have a different scenery. We're no longer in the Valley of Decision where the battle took place, but now we're transported to Mount Zion. We're now in Jerusalem, no longer focusing on the battle, but in a sense, the result of the battle. And notice here it says, the Lord roars from Zion. The term there for roar, shahag in Hebrew, is a reference to a lion that's roaring. Uh, Think about in Judges 14, when Samson fights the lion, the lion would roar. The same verb would be used. Over and over throughout the Old Testament, this term was used for a lion roaring. Well, now, who is in Jerusalem, who has established peace for the people of God? The Lion of Judah. In fact, turn your Bibles, if you will, to Genesis 49, 9 through 10. I want you to see a prophecy that was given by Israel, by Jacob. And Jacob prophesied about his son. Remember the 12 sons, but this son in particular, Judah, was the one from whom the Messiah comes. And that's where this imagery comes, where the Messiah is going to be from the tribe of Judah. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. Genesis 49.9, here's what Israel said of his son Judah. He says, Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He couches, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion, who dares rouse him? says, the scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he comes to whom it belongs, and the obedience of the nations is his. So notice the connection to Judah and the lion. 
But notice also in Genesis 49.10, the scepter will not depart from Judah until he comes to whom it belongs. That's a messianic reference. It's a messianic prophecy. Um, in fact, it's reiterated in Psalm 118.26. Remember one of the Hallel Psalms? As the Israelites would go up to the Feast of Tabernacles, they would sing these praise psalms. One of them was Psalm 118.26, where they would say, Blessed is the one who comes in the name of Yahweh. So, yes, all of the worshipers were blessed because they were going up to the Lord, but they were anticipating the day that the Messiah himself would come and that they would celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles where God would literally tabernacle with his people anew. They were singing of that day. In fact, we see John the Baptist ask the question. Do you remember he's about to be beheaded? And he's a little nervous. He has a moment of doubt. And he sends the question, is he the one who comes, or should we look for another? He's referencing Genesis 49.10 in Psalm 118.26. Do you remember when Jesus leaves the temple... He's hot under the collar. He's angry with the unbelief of the leadership of Israel. In Matthew 23, and he says, You will not see me again until you say, Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. That is, they recognize he is the Messiah. Okay? So that is a messianic reference, Genesis 49.10. That's where we see the Messiah is going to be the Lion of Judah. Uh, Turn your Bibles to Revelation 5.5. I just want you to see that this is a connection the biblical authors make themselves. It's not just Eric Dalmer or some other teacher seeing it. You see, John makes the connection. Revelation 5 5. Notice it says, And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. Remember, they were looking for someone who was worthy of opening the seven seals. Who was worthy? The Lion of Judah, the Messiah. Now remember, those seals are what? That's the wrath of God. How can it be the wrath of man when it's the Messiah who opens the seals? It's his wrath. He's the one who's opening it. It's not some man. It's the the one from the tribe of Judah. So Jesus is a lamb who lays down his life to purchase his people from their sins. But he's also the lion who's strong enough to prevail in any battle to protect his people. He's not either or, he's both and. And that's a beautiful picture that we see in the scriptures of Jesus. Notice also this phrase where it says, but the Lord is a refuge for his people and a stronghold to the sons of Israel. There's a contrast. To the enemies of God, the Messiah will be like the Lion of Judah. He will go after them. He will destroy his enemies. But for his people, he's our refuge. You see that today. You see a hatred of God. You see a hatred of Christianity in the culture. You see a hatred of everything that comes from Christ. But for his people, he's our refuge. You see the same thing. It'll be, that'll become a stronger issue after the 70th week of Daniel for sure. Notice also, he says, my holy mountain, he's going to be dwelling In Zion, the term there for dwelling, Shekan, this is a beautiful picture because the Messiah is going to be dwelling with his people forevermore. How many have ever heard of the term Shekinah glory? The term Shekinah comes from the verb Shekan, meaning to dwell. That's that's the verb for it right there. Now, why is that important? Well, do you remember that God's Shekinah glory would dwell with the Israelites? Now, there's something we have to think about 
if God's Shekinah glory dwelt with Israel, did that mean that he wasn't elsewhere? Did somehow God fail to be omnipresent? No. So in other words, God is omnipresent. He's everywhere. David says, if I ascend into the heavens, you are there. If I go down to Sheol, you are there. Where can I flee from your presence? The answer is nowhere. God is omnipresent. So why did it say that God's Shekinah glory was with Israel? It showed his favor. That he was with Israel differently than he was with the Philistines. Oh yes, he was there where the Philistines, he saw their wretchedness, he saw their wickedness. But his Shekinah glory, the theophany, the presence of God that you could see, was in Israel showing that they had his favor. In the same way, you are dwelt by the Holy Spirit. You're indwelt. Now, is the Holy Spirit omnipresent? Oh, yes, he's everywhere. But you, as believers in Christ, uniquely have his presence. You uniquely have his favor. It's a relational issue, not a spatial issue. That's what I want you to see. Now, the Shekinah glory was real. There was a real theophany that showed that in the Holy of Holies, this was the people of the Holy One of Israel. I want you to think of where the Shekinah glory left Israel. They left because of their idolatry. Remember God in Ezekiel 10, his Shekinah glory leaves the temple, it goes out to the Mount of Olives, and it ascends. Fast forward to the New Testament. Jesus, Matthew 23, the glory of God incarnate leaves the temple. And by the way, where does Jesus ascend from? The Mount of Olives. You see the same pattern. So all of a sudden, the, the, the expectation is one day the Shekinah glory, the Messiah is going to return. The glory of God will be back in his temple. That's what you're reading about. That's what you're reading about in Joel chapter 3. That all of this promises, when Jesus said, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of Yahweh, that's going to be fulfilled here at the end of this battle in Joel 3. Amen, amen. And exactly, and, um, do you remember the reference to that is in Acts one eleven? Remember the angels say to the disciples, men of Galilee, why do you gaze skyward? This Jesus coming back in like manner. So you're absolutely right. Just as he ascended from the Mount of Olives, he's coming again to it. And that's why in Zechariah 14, it says it will split in two when he sets his feet on the Mount of Olives. Rich, great point. In that battle that we're looking at in Zechariah 14, that's the same one Joel 3 is talking about. Absolutely. Now, I want to just, um, you know what, we'll hit this next time, I think. But, well, let me put it up. i got a couple of minutes. I'll put up Isaiah 2. This is when this is going to be fulfilled. Remember, one of the great promises in the book of Isaiah is where this peace finally comes to all of the earth, where the Messiah reigns. It depicts the ideal Jerusalem in the millennial kingdom. It says, The word which Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In verse 2 it says, It will come about that in the last days the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains and will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. When does that occur? It's the same time period that Joel 3 is depicting. Notice here there's going to be a topographical change. Jerusalem will be actually elevated so that it's the highest mountain. So not only is it symbolic, it will be literal as well. And all the nations will flow to it and they will learn the word of the Lord. One thing that's kind of hit me the last few months during this difficult election cycle and after is how many times error and falsehood is allowed 
And I don't know about you, but there's this longing for God to be on the scene of history who will say that that's not right or that's not true. He calls balls and strikes as they really are. That day is coming. One of the examples I've thought about is this poor Kyle Rittenhouse. Um, he's been a, 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 man, a young man in my prayers, and I don't know if you've seen, how many in here have heard of Kyle Rittenhouse? Kyle Rittenhouse was the one who was trying to defend a gas station from being looted by Black Lives Matters and Antifa earlier this summer. And the social justice warriors who claim that they speak for God, they want to see this young man in jail. But let me ask the question to the social justice warriors out there and for you to ponder. What's more loving to protect your neighbor's property from being looted or to loot your neighbor's property? The social justice warriors say we loot, therefore we're doing social justice. You have a young man who said, no, I'm going to protect my neighbor's property because the government won't do it. And they threw him in jail and they let the BLM loot and they don't go to jail. That to me is infuriating. And what we see here in Joel 3 and Isaiah 2 and these passages that we're studying, that there's a day that the Lord will roar from Zion and all the nations are going to go up and they're going to learn what true justice is. And it's going to look, you know what it's going to look like? It's going to look like what he's revealed in the scriptures. And so for those of you that have taken your scriptures seriously, you will be vindicated. And all of those who hate the word of God, who distort it, and claim that there's peace, peace, when there is no peace, they're going to be thrown down. The Holy One of Israel is going to be reigning in Jerusalem. And brothers and sisters, I can't wait for that day. Where true justice will, will happen. Where those who really love their neighbors will be seen for what they are. And those who really hate their neighbors will be seen for what they are. You won't be able to hide from the gaze of the Holy One of Israel. He will be on the scene rectifying all of these issues. What a day that'll be. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, we long for this day that you come back and reign and rule. We do pray, Lord, that in the intervening time that you'd give us boldness and grace and love to give your gospel so that people can repent and believe upon your son that they may trust in him and have forgiveness of sins and become partakers of this glorious kingdom but we do pray lord that you would come for us that you would set up your righteous kingdom lord that you would put down the enemies and be our god we pray this in jesus name amen